And let me begin by saying, I'm going to say Haiti, and you say solidarity. I'm going to say Haiti, and you're going to say solidarity. Haiti. Solidarity. Haiti. Solidarity. Haiti. Solidarity. Right on. And in that light, let me say that in our neighborhood, uh, some kilometers south of here, just across the border, Mexico, there are about 4,500 Haitians who are languishing in about 30 refugee centers in Baja, California. Many of them fled after the 2010 earthquake. Many of them made their way to Brazil, but when strains were induced in the Brazilian economy, somehow they made their way to Mexico. I think it would be quite worthwhile for the religious community, the political community, the radical community to join hands and to help our brothers and sisters across the border right now to accomplish their dreams, be it entering the United States despite the Trump ban, or even returning to Haiti if that is their wish, because I am going to present two themes to you this afternoon. One is the enormous debt of gratitude we all owe to Haiti. And paying back that debt would be a way to help our brothers and sisters now across the border. And second of all, that in terms of our struggle against Trump and Trumpism, the lesson of black history in North America is that the way we have been able to make this difficult course through slavery, through Jim Crow, to what we have today, is through internationalism and struggle. We all know about the struggle part. Sometimes we forget about the internationalism. And the Haitian Revolution is the example in the first instance that we mention when we talk about the importance of internationalism to black history. I say that because the Haitian Revolution has been billed as the only successful slave revolt in world history. Some of you might be familiar with the film Spartacus, uh, written by the left-wing novel by the left-wing writer Howard Faz, the screenplay by Dalton Trumbo. And you may recall the penultimate scene when uh, Spartacus is being persecuted by the dictators of that era, as opposed to the dictators of the present era. And in solidarity, those who were with Spartacus said, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus. Well, what I'm trying to tell you this afternoon is that I am Haitian, you are Haitian, you are Haitian, you are Haitian, because we all owe a debt of gratitude to Haiti that must be repaid somehow, some way. Uh, Haiti created the first black republic. It was the first capital of African radicalism. But most important for our purposes today is that the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, ignited a general crisis of the entire slave system in the Americas that could only be resolved with its collapse. That collapse took place, as you know, in the 1830s in Jamaica and Antigua and Barbados as London realized that the jig was up once the Africans seized power on the island because like revolutionaries anywhere, the Haitian revolutionaries wanted to spread their gospel not least to neighboring Jamaica, 
a fabulously wealthy sugar colony of that time, and London had the good sense, after, of course, taking a beating, to realize that the jig was up and move towards abolition of slavery in the 1830s. And then in the United States itself, in the 1860s, and then in Brazil in 1888. So therefore, we cannot begin to understand the coming of abolition of slavery without understanding the Haitian Revolution. But sadly, the Haitian revolutionaries were the vanguard of the revolutionary force of that era. And any vanguard, if you're in the front lines, you're going to be the first to take arrows in your chest. And that's precisely what happened to the Haitian revolutionaries. That is to say that we all know about the struggle for reparations. We all know how people of African descent in North America have been pressing for reparations for these centuries of unpaid labor that helped to build this country. Some of you may also be aware that reparations was an issue in the Haitian struggle, but not in the way that you think. That is to say that the successful Haitian revolutionaries were compelled and forced and obligated to pay reparations to the former slave owners for the losses the slave owners supposedly suffered when slavery was abolished. And so when the slave owners then fled to places like New Orleans, for example, they helped to convert this city on the Gulf of Mexico, speaking of New Orleans, in the pre-1861 era as being the North American city with the most millionaires per capita in North America because <laughs> the Haitians were sending money to the slave owners who, of course, were then becoming millionaires. But it's not only that in terms of trying to understand what happened to Haiti. Keep in mind that as we speak, the island of Hispaniola, as it was dubbed, is occupied by two nations, and that's part of the story I'm going to tell. After the Haitian Revolution succeeded and triumphed in 1804, about a decade and a half later, the Haitian revolutionaries moved eastward to occupy the eastern side of the island, then occupied by Spanish colonizers. They ended centuries of colonialism and slavery initiated by Christopher Columbus himself, because recall that when Christopher Columbus crossed the Atlantic, uh, this pirate went back to Europe with a number of indigenous people in tow who were converted into slaves. And in fact, one of the points that historians are just beginning to uncover is that one of the early slave trades in the Americas involved indigenous people who were taken from the Americas and sold into slave markets in North Africa, in Europe, in Turkey, in Southern Africa, in what is now Indonesia. Millions of indigenous people were scattered and dispersed all over this planet. And of course, this served two purposes. One, of course, is obvious. The folks like Columbus are making money. But second of all, of course, they're engaging in massive ethnic cleansing, uh, cleansing the land of Native Americans 
And of course, North America was not bereft of that process. Some of you might be familiar with the 1637 Pequot War in what is now New England, where the indigenous people were defeated and then sold into slavery. At that point, the, the so-called New Englanders were selling the indigenous people into slavery, mostly in the Caribbean. And in 1676, of course, there was King Philip's War, where the indigenous people once again were routed in New England, uh, completing the process of ethnic cleansing, and also were sold in large numbers to the Caribbean. So in 1822, the Haitians move across the border into the Spanish side of the island. They kick out the Spanish, ending slavery, ending colonialism, which obviously did not make many friends uh, in North America where slavery was king. And then they began inviting the population then known as US Negroes to come to Haiti to settle. And these are mostly free US Negroes and thousands took up the charge and of course their descendants continued to reside on the island. Although of course, although they moved to Haiti, as you shall shortly see, they became Dominicans. <laughs> But in any case, before I get to that point, let me mention that in terms of talking about how Haitians helped to instigate the abolition of slavery, it's not only in terms of their example, it's also in terms of direct material aid. Many of you are familiar with the story of Denmark Vesey in South Carolina, circa 1821-1822, in the church, of course, in which the terrorist Dylan Roof massacred nine black worshipers about 18 months ago, and of course has received the death penalty as a result. Of course, Denmark Vesey, a free black seafarer, plotted a revolt in the precursor to that church. Of course, after the revolt was uncovered and exposed, the slave masters burnt the church to the ground so it had to be rebuilt. But in any case, Denmark Vesey was not only intending to revolt against slavery, but then to move Africans in South Carolina, in Charleston, in mass to Haiti. As a seafarer, he had been in and out of Haiti many times. Then, of course, Margaret is from Barbados, as she often reminds us, and in 1816, the major slave revolt that took place in Barbados that shook the British Empire to its core, as I talk about in the book, there's evidence to suggest that that was directly inspired, if not materially supported, by Haitian revolutionaries. And then, of course, there's the Nat Turner slave revolt, 1831 in Virginia, just memorialized in cinematic form in the what I consider to be a marvelous contribution, Birth of a Nation, starring, directed, produced, co-written by Nate Parker. And as I talk about in the book, there's evidence to suggest that Haitian fingerprints were all over the Nat Turner slave revolt, which once again shook slavery to its core in North America and helped to convince those who needed convincing that maintaining enslavement comes with a heavy price, not least being poisoned when you're served your breakfast in the morning, not least having your throat slit while you're sleeping at night, 
not least having your house burnt down along with your fields when the enslaved is supposed to be working. And that crisis that was gripping the slave system, of course, convinced those who needed convincing that slavery needed to go. And then, of course, there's Gabriel's revolt, uh, which unfolds as the Haitian Revolution was unfolding approximately 217 years ago, uh, when in Virginia, once again, Africans were inspired by the example of the Haitian Revolution then unfolding and rose up against slavery in Virginia. Now, as you all know, no good deed goes unpunished. And so in 1844, the empire strikes back in one of the most and first successful covert actions of the exceedingly busy US intelligence authorities, they helped to foment a secession of, from the eastern part of the island that Haiti then controlled, setting up the nation now known as the Dominican Republic. That, of course, created continuing enmity between the two nations to this very day, culminating, you may recall, in the massacre of darker-skinned peoples, some of them Dominicans, some of them Haitians, by the Dominican dictator Trujillo in the 1930s, once again memorialized in the wonderful novel by the Haitian-American Haitian writer Danticat. And of course, those sorts of massacres have been unfolding on a regular basis. Uh, today, as we speak on the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, you have a massive crisis, not least because of the white supremacist impulses that helped to inspire the secession of what became the Dominican Republic in the first place. The Dominican elite, at least some of them, contend that darker-skinned peoples are not Dominicans, they're Haitians, and therefore need to be expelled, need to be massacred, and they certainly are not Dominican citizens. In fact, there was a leading candidate for the presidency of the DR just a few years ago uh, who was subjected to this vicious whispering campaign because he was dark-skinned, and it was said that he was not actually Dominican, uh, he was Haitian, and therefore he should not be voted into office. And of course, I'm sure the baseball fans amongst us are familiar with the case of Sammy Sosa. Uh, you may want to call up on your smartphones the Google, Google images of Sammy Sosa when he was a slugger with the Chicago Cubs and slammy, slamming Sammy Sosa today uh, when magically he's lost the melanin from his face. And unlike Mac Michael Jackson, I don't think he can claim he has vitiligo or some other uh, skin disease. But it, it's, it's a reflection of that white supremacist impulse that led to the formation of the DR in the first place. And let me say quickly that you know, I don't challenge the territorial integrity of the Dominican Republic or his, or his right to sovereignty. But as I will try to explain shortly, I think that it's very important as a historian for historians to try to put all the facts out there. Um, because as a historian, presumably I'm not only writing for the current generations and present generations, as a historian, presumably I'm writing for future generations as well. And it's very important, it seems to me, for future generations to get as full and complete a story 
of what has transpired to get us to this point as possible so that they'll know how to move and how to maneuver. In any case, this brings me to the last few minutes that I'd like to talk about this dilemma of trying to be a political activist and a historian, uh, as noted where the historian is trying to speak to future generations and the political activist is trying to effectuate changes today. And this creates certain dilemmas and conflicts and contradictions. I mean, for example, I wrote this book that's on the table over there, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance in the Origins of the United States of America. And for many US patriots, including some of my left-wing friends, they were not very appreciative of this book, which basically contends that the United States was born as a slaveholder's rebellion, not unlike the Unilateral Declaration of Independence in Rhodesia, Southern Africa in 1965, where the white minority regime revolted in 1965 to escape the logic of decolonization and George Washington and his comrades rebelled in 1776 to escape the logic of abolition of slavery given London moving steadily towards abolition for strategic reasons that I detail in the book. And of course, many of our, my left-wing friends, they bring up the case of Tom Paine, who is basically the best that North America has to offer in terms of progressivism. But if you put Tom Paine and Haitian Revolution in your smartphone, you'll find that he was lukewarm at best towards the Haitian Revolution. And likewise, with regard to Abraham Lincoln, who is considered as a hero by many, including on the left, the forces that went to fight fascism from the United States in the 1930s in Spain, call themselves the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. But of course, as I say in the book, Abraham Lincoln, he was trying to send the Negroes in the United States all over the place. He went to, in my book on Brazil, I talked about he was negotiating with the Brazilians to send us there. He was negotiating with the Ecuadorians to send us there. He was negotiating with the Haitians and Dominicans to send us there. But for various reasons, none of that worked out, and so I guess we're still here. <laughs> or even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, who of course is given credit for the New Deal and Social Security and old age pension and all the rest, of course is oftentimes not stressed that he was an architect of the occupation by the US authorities of Haiti and the Dominican Republic from about 1915 to 1934, which really warped the economy, led to the massacre of many uh, Haitian revolutionaries uh, of that era, or even California's uh, own Earl Warren, who's given credit for being the Supreme Court Justice who wrote the opinion in Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, which basically laid to rest this idea of US apartheid, separate but equal, so-called. But Earl Warren, as you may know, was also the architect of the internment of Japanese and Japanese Americans. I mean, he was a real hawk when it came to putting uh, in these uh, former horse stables Japanese and Japanese Americans. Uh, I'm afraid to say uh, we would all do well to study that particular internment for reasons of self-interest, if nothing else. <laughs> but I say all that to say that as a political activist, I don't necessarily try to engage with my liberal and left-wing friends about 
the blemishes on the records of their heroes. But as, as a historian, I'm obligated and compelled to put that forth because I don't see how we can come up with a strategy and an analysis and the appropriate tactics unless we know what happened and have a full record. Otherwise, we'll come up with an inadequate strategy based on an inadequate analysis, which will basically lead us over the cliff. And so, likewise, with regard to our struggles today, building this anti-Trump coalition uh, on the principle, as we used to say back in the day, of unity without uniformity. Uh, in that kind of coalition, you seek conciliation with your allies as a political activist. But then again, many of our political, my political allies in this anti-Trump coalition, they're saying things that are really not true, which puts me in a dilemma. For example, with regard to the so-called Muslim ban, they're saying, that's not who we are. Well, well yeah, it is who we are. I mean, that was, <laughs> I mean, haven't you heard of the internment of Japanese and Japanese? As a matter of fact, as I was saying on Sojourner Truth the other day, I was, one of the things I'm doing here, I have this book coming out in a few months on Afro-Asian solidarity, so I was doing some last-minute research on the internment. And it turns out that the liberals were the ones who were pushing for the internment. The real men with hair on their chests, the conservatives, they wanted expulsion or worse. And that's the dilemma we often face in this country. The retrograde and right-wing forces are so strong, not least because of the nature of how the so-called republic was started and ha has not been sufficiently interrogated or criticized, which has allowed this continuing resurgence and recrudescence of right-wing backwards forces. And the same holds true for Jim Crow. If you look at the history of Jim Crow following the US Civil War, it's the liberals who are pushing for Jim Crow, you know, separate but equal on buses and schools, et cetera, because once again, the real men with hair on their chest, the conservatives, they wanted exclusion or expulsion altogether. And so the liberals come up with a compromise. So unless we begin to understand this kind of dynamic, I don't think we'll be able to effectively um, defeat this Trump coalition. So, let me say that, in conclusion, that the lesson for people of goodwill, but particularly black folk, is that we all owe a debt of gratitude to the Haitian revolutionaries for igniting a general crisis of the slave system in the Americas that led to the abolition of slavery and freed us in North America. But let me also say to working class people of whatever stripe, that you also owe a debt of gratitude to the Haitian Revolution because slavery was a drag on wages. I don't know how many of you have ever had to compete against a slave worker. It drags your wages down like an anchor. And when slavery was abolished in North America, it's no, no accident that shortly thereafter a struggle erupts for the eight-hour day, as the labor movement likes to say. We're the ones who delivered the to you the weekend, because of course, at one time, there was no such thing as the weekend. You had to work seven days a week. But the labor movement might also have a footnote saying that we, the labor movement, assisted by the Haitian Revolution, are the people who brought you the weekend. So 
The fact of the matter is we all owe a debt of gratitude to Haiti and the, and the Haitian Revolution. And the lesson of the Haitian Revolution is that it took a global struggle, not just a struggle here in North America, but a global struggle to defeat slavery, which not only liberated us in North America, but put less pressure on Africa, which was the ultimate source of the enslaved, allowing Africans then to move forward. And likewise, with regard to our struggle today against the forces of reaction, now headquartered in Washington, D.C. and in the White House, it will take a global struggle to defeat that particular formation, not least because I don't think we should underestimate at all the strength of retrograde and right-wing forces in North America who have countenanced slavery, have countenanced virtually every barbarism known to human beings, and would have no hesitation to bring each and every one of those barbarisms back to life today. Thank you very much. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a quick station break. When we return, we'll be hearing more from Dr. Gerald Horn, as well as Pierre Labossier from their recent talks on Haiti at Holman United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Um, now, Pierre Labossier, he is a co-founder of the Haiti Action uh, Committee, very, very well-respected uh, campaigner uh, for the movement for democracy on the ground in Haiti. And of course, Dr. Gerald Horn is the Moores Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston and is the author of Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. We'll be right back. Stay with us. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and that song, um, the great Bernice Johnson Reagan, uh, one of the founders of the Freedom Singers, a founder of Sweet Honey and the Rock, and that was her singing, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Check us out on our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're on Facebook, you can look for us on Facebook. And we're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there, Margaret Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott on Twitter and Instagram. You can find our handle at SoTrueRadio. And today we want to give a shout out to the Sojourner Truth uh, listeners on SoundCloud. 
look for us on SoundCloud. We'd like to give a shout out to our listeners in Haiti and throughout the Caribbean region and in the United States. A shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in New Orleans. We now return to our special on Haiti and to a talk delivered by Pierre Leboisier, a co-founder of the Haiti Action Committee on the situation at the time of this recording in Haiti. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Such, such an honor to be with you, such a great pleasure. You can't imagine how happy this is for me and how precious it is right now that you have turned out in such great numbers for the people of Haiti right now who are engaged in the struggle. This is truly an act of solidarity, and we are so happy, and the brothers and sisters in Haiti will be so happy to see those photos as they are engaged in this struggle. And Margaret gave me my marching orders, and I said, yes, sister. <laughs> so the clip you are going to see has a lot of significance. It's a people, our sisters and brothers, on the ground in Haiti, who are saying no to a stolen election. And this is not just an election where you go vote and then, well, somebody else wins, then you go home and life is back to normal. This is a struggle that people have been waging in Haiti to have a seat at the table of decision making. This means literally life or death, and I will explain that later on during the presentation. What you will be seeing here is a community called La Saline, where people are very, very poor. They work hard, but yet they have been impoverished by a system that doesn't care about them just like the system never cared about us from the days that we were kidnapped from our motherland in Africa and put into slavery. And yet they continue to struggle. And in La Saline, they turned out massively to vote for the party of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, Father Aristide and now former President Aristide. And their votes were stolen. And from that very night, they knew what had happened. I was talking to Margaret and I were in Haiti. And they said they will not accept it. The very, that very night, some people took to the streets. We were talking November 20th, 2016. The next day, people turned out in more numbers. And they have been on the streets since. Yesterday was another big demonstration, the 56th demonstration. Many of you from here who People from the South in the U.S. know about the people turning out day after day after day in massive protests. Well, same thing has gone on. And you'll see this community was attacked. Imagine, one in the morning, the Haitian police, along with soldiers from the United Nations backing them, who have trained and super, who are supervising them, launch an attack on this community where they lobbed tear gas, a potent form of tear gas, that actually right by the people's doors as they were in their bed sleeping. And this tear gas made its way into the homes and suffocated three children, three babies who died. You didn't read about this in the LA Times or the New York Times or any place else, but if you listen to KPFK, you would have heard it. And the people, I heard about it on Radio Timun, which is the grassroots radio station from the Aristide Foundation. And right away, I told Margaret about it. 
And the next day, the attacks continue. And the attacks did continue. And so what you'll be seeing here is the clip uh, during daylight as the attacks were continuing, trying to make the people stay home and not join a massive demonstration that was planned that day to protest the stolen election. And still, the people did turn out, and you are going to see when they joined the main demonstration how they were welcomed by people, because by that time, everybody knew they had been under attack. Uh, in the interest of time, I said a lot here, so <laughs> I think that covered pretty much my talk. But um, I just want to let you know how proud and happy I am to be here today, being at Holman. United Methodist Church means so much to me. During the first coup d'etat in um, the early 90s, uh, Reverend James Lawson was one of the very few who stood up in solidarity with the people of Haiti. At, in this very church with the members of this congregation, and they stood up in outrage to what was going on at that time by the Bush administration, Bush the senior, or as the Haitians call him, Papa Bush, a reference to Papa Doc Duvalier. And so, um, and this community stood and defended the rights of the Haitian to have political asylum. And, uh, and we all know the history of, the, of James, Reverend James Lawson in the South with Dr. King. And, uh, and at the same time, I was working with his brother, Reverend Phil Lawson in Oakland, and he had founded a group, he had co-founded a group called Clergy for Haiti. So the two brothers had linked up working with, in solidarity with the people of Haiti, really joining in, in solidarity in the spirit of brothers and sisters in the South and their work in the United States, African-Americans who are marching for freedom and voting rights. What you are seeing here and also today, it, it's such a joy to see that Reverend Kelvin Sauls from South Africa, right? And as you saw those pictures, a lot of us, a lot of those photos, that footage remind us of the struggle of the people of South Africa for the right to vote and the right to sit at the table and not for people to tell them that they were second-class citizens or third-class citizens. And they were citizens of South Africa. And today, South Africa is free because of the struggle of the people and international solidarity. And international solidarity. Thank you, Reverend Sosa. And what we are saying today, as we see that immigrant communities are under attack, not just immigrant communities, and so many communities, black folks are under attack, the Voting Rights, Act, uh, Voting Rights Act has been gutted, so the time is for us to stand shoulder to shoulder with each other, to stand for each other's rights, for our rights, because our rights are worldwide, they are human rights. The right to vote is something that's universal. When the United Nations, who's supposed to be the prime arbiter, the prime guarantor, that's what they said in their mission, of human rights and the right to vote, the right to have decent housing, the right to have food, the right to have medical care. When we see them as we see them in Haiti, joining forces with criminals to prevent people from having those rights, we know we are in trouble. We know it's time to stand up together and say, no, we won't accept this. And today, as we are here at Holman United Methodist Church, brothers and sisters in Haiti will be taking to the streets come Monday. Today, they were meeting and planning 
at the Aristide Foundation. They will be taking to the streets come Monday, once again, to say no to this. This is going to inspire them. This is going to let them know that they are not alone, that despite all of the, all of the press, the, the mainstream media has been ignoring their struggle. They see that people standing with them on a Saturday afternoon when you all could be doing so many other things, but you are here. That will give them heart. That will let them know that they can continue and they will succeed. <laughs> Sisters and brothers, our, our folks are in the streets. Because from the time our foremothers and forefathers were kidnapped, into slavery. The people who did the kidnapping and the enslavement looked at us as not being humans. They took us to make wealth for themselves. And now we are talking close to over 500 years ago. They still look at us in the same way. In Haiti, they look at our people as being good for nothing but to make wealth for them. Our brothers and sisters in Haiti, our foremothers and forefathers fought and defeated the French, the British, and the Spanish. And at that time, they were not Haitians. They were Africans kidnapped into slavery. They were from different uh, nations throughout Africa, but then they came together despite la different languages. They united because the chains of slavery united them all, and together it took their combined strength to break those chains. And today, this is what we are still fighting against, breaking those chains, and they demanded a seat at the table. They demanded that the land of the, of the former uh, slave, slave uh, the people who held them in slavery, that that land be distributed, that they too had to have a place in the sun. Well, today, the same struggle is going on, even though they want some, but they are trying to take their lands away. There is major land grab taking place in Haiti. Haiti is a very rich nation, rich not only in people and history, but rich in terms of mineral wealth and what's underground in Haiti. There is oil, there is gold, there is silver, there is bauxite, there is iridium and uranium, marble in quantities. They want those lands and they are stealing them from our people. Why are these elections important? Because now people in Haiti have, are becoming aware of the richness of the land. And so they are saying they want to vote in a government that is from the people and that will look out for their interests so that that land is not just taken over by a bunch of greedy foreigners and the rich Haitian elite which will take the gold and the oil and make, have riches. We can look at Nigeria, what has happened to brothers and sisters. We can look at the Congo, what has happened, even though their land is rich, but those, the wealth doesn't benefit them. It benefits others, but not them. And so people send us NGOs, supposedly to give us, oh, we'll give you a spoonful of rice. No, we don't want a spoonful of rice. We want the, our rice. And we want the whole building, the whole warehouse of rice that we produce. And so this is what's going on. And people in Haiti know 
that it's the power of their voting that is going to change the system in terms of putting a government in place by the people, for the people, that will carry out the people's agenda. And so who did they choose? They chose Famila Valas, the party of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Not because the brother speaks beautifully well, not because he's a poet, but because he has been in the trenches with the people since he was a young man. And when they put him as president of Haiti, they, his administration built schools, hospitals. He didn't take money, put it in his pocket like Papa Doc and Baby Doc, and then went to live in luxury in France. He stayed there and built hospitals. A hundred, close to 120 high schools were built in the 10 years of democracy when President Aristide was there and then later President Preval, who was forced to do this because the grassroots movement forced him to do it, close to 120 high schools were built, whereas before in the first 190 years of Haitian history, only 30 high schools had been built. Look at the difference, you see? President Aristide took the money from the military, Haitian military, and from those corporations that were not paying their taxes, and he put it to build schools, to build hospitals, invested in our farmers. That's what the money, and things started changing in Haiti. That's why a coup d'etat took place. Only three times our people had a chance to vote. It was in 1990 when they voted for, for Father Aristide to be president of Haiti. 1995 was the next election. At that time, the people's government was in power and they voted for President Preval who ended up betraying the people. And then they voted again in 2000 for President Aristide. Each time President Aristide came to power, the folks from the US, the big powers, came in and overthrew his government. But yet our brothers and sisters said, in, no matter what, we are going to exercise our right to vote. And the people you don't want to see in power, we want them to be in power. Because we know they will be representing us. So as I conclude, I want to tell you, in order for this movement, for the right to vote to succeed in Haiti, we need your solidarity and your awareness. I want to thank you so much for having always contributed with your thoughts, your prayers, your phone calls to your Congress people. I want to say a big thank you to Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who has never missed a bit when it comes to Haiti. She's always there with us. And, and, uh, and to each and every one of you. This is what we need right now. To close again at this point, brothers and sisters in Haiti, they are imposing on us a man by the name of Jovenel Moise, who's a man handpicked by the Clinton group, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, and the UN occupation of Haiti, they handpicked them. They want them in power because a lot of the land that they have taken, that this occupation and those powerful forces outside of Haiti have stolen from the people illegally, they know if there is a government by the people, all of those contracts will be null and void. 
they have pre-selected a group of people. There was no election when Margaret and I went there. There was theater, the trappings of an election. They showed people going to the, but as we spoke to people, they said their names were not on the, they saw their names outside, but when they went inside, their names were not there for them to vote. They were being turned away from the polls. So what happened was those lines made for great theater. People saw that people were going to vote, but actually they were not allowed to vote. Haiti is a laboratory. It's a laboratory for things that will be coming on us. The same people who have gutted the Voting Rights Act, the same people who are setting up those voter ID, those restrictive laws, voting laws right now, are those same people who have trained the people in Haiti. The, the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute, the NDI, and others, IFES, I-F-E-S, supposedly to teach us how to do elections. Come on now, we know how to do democracy. That's part of our DNA. I'm talking about our brothers and sisters from way back in Africa. We know how to do that. But all of a sudden, they have to teach it to us. And you see, that will come back to haunt us here in the US. When brothers and sisters from the ILWU, my old union, say an injury to one is an injury to all, and being the great revolutionary Jesus Christ said what you do to the least among thee is what you do to me. This is what's happening. <laughs> Our own, it's morally important that we stand with each other. Whether we are any place in the world, it's morally important. If, if we are looking for our own self-interest, then it's in our self-interest to also stand with each other. Because what they do to the one that's most vulnerable today is what they'll do to you. So, brothers and sisters, thank you so much. And I also want to thank everyone who made this program possible. A photo of this audience will have huge impact in Haiti. We are going to get it on Haitian program, the Creole program, so that brothers and sisters in Haiti can see it. You can see brothers and sisters standing with them. Um, it, it's so important that they see you and that they know they are not alone. So once again, thank you all so very, very much. Thank you. Th thank you so much. Oh, yes. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much. So much that they have done, and, and I'm glad you raised that. Uh, the UN brought cholera to Haiti, and that cholera, among the other crimes, they committed many massacres too by shooting at people while they were in bed, uh, while they were sleeping. So what you saw here was only the tip of the iceberg. But uh, um, yes, and that cholera killed over 10,000 people. So uh, there, many, many of us believe it's biological warfare. But Margaret wanted me to say 
uh, we will not obey. That was a speech by President Arisid in September, on September 30th, 2015. He was warning the Haitian people that the struggle ahead would be long and tough. He said there is a lot of money being put out there so that the, the rights of the people, their voting rights can be turned over, that there will be, can be repressed and there will be an electoral coup d'etat coming. And he said the name Haiti means do not obey. Do not obey illegitimate officials. Do not obey phony institutions. Stand on your truth and don't bow down to them. And what we have to do is overturn the coup d'etat, elect, the electoral coup d'etat that they are going to do to us. And so that was some the people took to heart. Uh, also in closing, and we say it, pas no, pa obéi. Pa obéi. So if you want to say, we will not obey, you say, nous pap obéi. pap obéi. And I know that that's something Dr. King had said, Rosa Parks had said, Malcolm X had said, and so many others have said, we will not obey legitimate rules. And then finally, I just want to say to you, if you haven't read Dr. Horn's book, I tell you, it's a mind blower. I, 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 I tell you, every piece of it is just phenomenal information. And that's what we need. So thank you, Dr. Horn, for this magnificent work. We're out of time. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes, uh, production intern Julianne uh, Tweeton. And we also want to thank Mr. T. Teddy Robinson, our engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-7350-230 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Remember to visit our website at SoTrueRadio.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki Memorial 2019 on Tuesday, August 6th at 6 p.m at the Japanese American Historical Plaza in Portland. This year, the annual Hiroshima and Nagasaki Memorial event is focused on the unequal impacts of nuclear weapons and will explore the disproportionate impacts that nuclear weapons have on women, children, indigenous communities, and communities of color. Again, that's Hiroshima and Nagasaki Memorial 2019. The Unequal Impacts of Nuclear Weapons on Tuesday, August 6th at 6 p.m. at the Japanese American Historical Plaza at Northwest NATO Parkway and Cooch Street in 